You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Exodus 3, 1 through 15, and then 4, 29 through 30 to 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites. The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshiped. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, guys. It is a joy to be together with you. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, yeah, this is an epic text, epic story here. Famous, lots of, uh, yeah, lots of familiar stories for us. Um, And there's no way that that I'm going to, do it justice. Um, 
but I'm going to try and I'm going to pray right now and ask for the Lord's help in that. Father God, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would, um, yeah, that you would speak to us, Lord, as, as clearly as you spoke to Moses, Lord, that, that we would see that, that you are who you are. I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, open our hearts as we get in this text, Lord, as we, um, yeah, just learn what you would have for us this morning. We love you. We're so thankful for you and, and for your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> we're in the, the book of Exodus. If, um, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus 3 and 4. Um, we've been going through the book of Exodus. We started a couple weeks ago, and a couple of the, the applications that, that Chad brought out in the first, the first sermon um, that kind of carry throughout the book, we see those in this passage as well, we, we saw them last week. Um, so number one, trust in God's providence, rest in God's promise, glory in God's presence. You know, we see that so clearly in, in the scene um, we're covering today. And then number four, live as God's people. Last week we saw in chapters one and two that, that God sees and hears and knows his people. You know, the, the last couple of verses of chapter two, they really, they really draw that out. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and the cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. We saw in, in those chapters that, that even when it doesn't seem like God is working, he is. And that's kind of our, our context for this passage. Even though the Israelites are groaning, you know, we see the, the first, um, first word of this passage is meanwhile. You know, so the Israelites are groaning, but meanwhile, God is, is working. He's preparing a redeemer. So, yeah, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So last week we, we saw that, that Moses was, was born as a Hebrew into a Hebrew family, but because of the oppression against the Israelites, he was, had to be hidden, had to be given up, and he was raised as an Egyptian. We saw that he, um, he attacked an Egyptian that was um, beating a Hebrew slave and ended up killing him. And so Moses was a fugitive for his life. Like that's why, that's why he was in Midian. That's why he was at the mountain of, of Horeb was because he because he was a murderer. He was a fugitive. So God is even using that type of crazy circumstance to work to redeem his people. So as in the text today, we're, we're planning to, um, we see pretty clearly that, that God reveals himself to Moses. We see that a lot in chapter three. He reveals that, that he is powerful, that he is a God that cares about his people. He's a God that cares about individual people. He's personal and that he's present. I have a lot of P words here, a lot of alliteration. Uh, and then in chapter four, we see um, you know, God's redemptive work to, to rescue Israel. Right? He has a plan. He displays his power and he uses all kinds of people. So as we get into to chapter three, 
we see that, that God is, is a powerful God. That's the first thing that he reveals to Moses. We see that pretty clearly through the, the burning bush, through God's holiness, and through how he will overpower the Egyptians. So first of all, the, the burning bush. Right? So Moses looked, he saw the bush was on fire but was not consumed. Just a lot of times we, we kind of brush over miracles in the Bible. Like we're, we're familiar with the story. We know that Moses saw a burning bush. God spoke to him through it. But we kind of take it for granted. And um, we kind of forget just the, the craziness of, of this. Just put yourself in, in Moses' shoes here. He's a shepherd. He's been there for a while. He's experienced. This probably isn't the first fire that he's seen. And so you see a bush that's on fire. You're responsible for all these sheep. You're probably, you know, looking around to see if it's a danger, like if you need to, to get out. You're looking for the evidence of where the burning has happened. Um, but Moses doesn't see that. He said this bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. Like this is a weird fire. Right? He's got to go check it out. So that's just a, a surface level evidence of, of God's power that he doesn't, he can override nature. Right? He doesn't need to burn a bush to actually have a fire. He can, he can cause this bush to be on fire, can speak to Moses through it without, you know, without following the laws of nature that something has to be consumed. So that's one evidence of God's power. Another one is just his holiness, right? So verse five, he says to Moses, do not come any closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. You know, it says that he's, he's at Horeb, the mountain of God. This is the same mountain that, that God is gonna reveal the law, gonna give the, the Ten Commandments. Um, but what makes this ground holy? Just that, that God says it is. Right, God is so holy that he could make any ground anywhere holy at any time. Like he could tell us all right now to take our shoes off because this is holy ground. God's holiness is, is so magnificent, so ultimate that, that it's just on display here and Moses needs to take his shoes off. We see in verse six that, that Moses is afraid to, to look at God. He hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I think of the, uh, the Disney movie Hercules. There's the little, little demon guy's pain and panic and Hades is, is mad at them and, and, he's, and they say, we are worms, we're filthy little worms. They kind of turn themselves into worms. That's a cheesy example, but that's kind of the, the feeling that, that Moses has, right? You, you see God's holiness and you realize that <laughs> you're a worm. You're a filthy little worm compared to the beauty, the wonderful, the otherness of God. Moses can't even look at him. Our God is so powerful. He can change nature, burn the bush without actually burning it. He's, he's so holy that, that Moses is afraid to look at him. And we see later in the chapter that, that God's power is so strong that he'll overpower the Egyptians. So down in verse 19, God says, I, I know the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. Egypt is kind of a global superpower at this point. Pharaoh is probably the most powerful man in the whole world. Right? He has never seen someone with a stronger hand than his. Right? He is ultimately powerful. He can say, do something, and it gets done. 
but he's never interacted with Yahweh, with God. God says, when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that he will let you go. And, you know, we see it's not just, it's not just that the, the people are limping out, escaping, right? They're, they're going, plundering the Egyptians. I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters so you will plunder the Egyptians. I'm not any kind of military historian or, or expert or anything, but I'm pretty sure that if your women leave with all the jewelry and the clothing from the women of that country, you won, right? That's, that seems like a you know, pretty, pretty simple you know, check to, to see who wins. So they don't leave just, in, just because Pharaoh let them go, but, but they plundered the Egyptians. There might be some, some superstition here that you know, the, the Egyptians have seen God's power, and so they're trying to get on his good side by giving the jewelry. But it is clear that God will show his power to the Egyptians. So we see God's power through the burning bush, through his holiness, and through the way that he overpowers the Egyptians. But even as powerful and holy and other he is, we see that he cares about his people. He is his people's God. So verse 7, the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land. God cares about his people. He cares about their, their suffering. He's heard them crying out because of their oppressors. We saw this clearly last week. You know, they were suffering, but God heard their groans. He, he knew their suffering. One thing I want to draw out here is, is the way that, that God cares about those who are being oppressed. All right, we see it clearly with the way that he cares about his people here, but we see it throughout the scriptures and, and people that are oppressed, like widows and, and orphans and immigrants. Luke chapter 20, verse 46 and 7, Jesus says, Beware of the scribes, who will go around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses, say long prayers just for show. They will receive harsher judgment. So these, these scribes that are trying to, you know, put on the religious face, trying to, to network and, and be good in the synagogue, but they devour widows' houses. They don't care about the poor. They don't care about the oppressed. And they're not on God's side. They will receive harsher judgment. James one twenty seven, pretty famous verse, says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's God's heart. He cares about those that are oppressed. I saw a, um, a tweet the other day where, where the guy said that, that God or the Bible talks about the poor and caring for the poor, mentioning these widows and orphans and sojourners nearly 2,000 times throughout the Bible. And the word gospel is only in the Bible about 100, 120. And so if you have a gospel that doesn't care for the poor, then you're, you're missing it. You're not, 
you're not in line with, with God's heart. So God cares about his people, especially when they are being oppressed. Down in, in verse 16, God tells Moses to, to go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I have paid close attention to you, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised you that I will bring you up from the mis- misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses and Aaron have a special role to come and, and speak to the Israelites, but God is, is bringing all his people out to rescue them. He's going to bring all his people out of Egypt back to this mountain to worship him. I just think that's such a beautiful truth that, that God has a people that he has set aside. He has a family that he cares for in a special way. But we see this truth throughout the scriptures that it's not about them, right? It's not what they do. It's not anything in particular about them. It's, it's what God does and how God shows his love to them. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing and, and he says, you know, when, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. So the Pharisees and Sadducees have you know, everything going for them in the, the way they, in, in the worldly eyes of of Jewish culture, right? But, but if their hearts aren't consistent with repentance, if they're not living the way that, that God was once, like the fact that they are a descendant of Abraham doesn't matter, right? God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones, right? So nothing about us brings us to God. God comes to us. So God is God who is for his people, but he also cares about the individual. He's a personal God. We see that in chapter 3, verse, verse 6, as God speaks to Moses, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What I want to draw out here is, is a slight difference in language. When Moses, or, or God gives Moses this, this phrasing, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in chapter 3, verse 15, verse 16, and down in chapter 4, verse 5. And all of those say, the God of your ancestors. Right? He's talking to the Israelites. I'm the God of your ancestors, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when he's talking to Moses, he makes it personal. He says, I am the God of your father. So he makes it personal, individual to Moses, but he also takes him back to his Hebrew lineage. Right? Moses has, has been raised in the palace, we don't even know if he knew about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God knows, and, and God brings him back to his family, back to his people. And he says, I am the God of your father. So God is a God that cares about his people. He cares about individual people. He cares about you and me. And he's also present. Exodus 3, 11 and 12, Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? 
God answered him, I will certainly be with you. So God doesn't even answer Moses' question. Right? Moses says, who am I that I should go? And God says, I will be with you. It doesn't, it's not about Moses. Right? It doesn't matter that who Moses is. Right? It's about that God is with him. It's kind of like if you're, if you're taking a flying lesson, you don't really know anything about flying, but the, the pilot, after you take off, he gives you the controls. You might have the controls, but you're not in control, right? Something goes wrong, the pilot's going to take back over. So Moses is, is being used by God, but it's not about Moses. It's about God. Another thing we, we see about God and his presence is, is just his transcendence. So the famous passage as God reveals his name, verse 13, Moses asks God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Moses, when he's asking this question of, you know, they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? Like, it's a little bit deeper than just, what is his name? You know, the, the Shakespeare line of, what's in a name, a rose spy in another name, would smell sweet. So God is, is revealing, you know, revealing his character a little bit to, to Moses as he shares his name. You can imagine that, that Moses is, would be nervous to go back to the Israelites like he, he was raised in the palace. He didn't face the, the beating and oppression that, that, they, that they did. He feared for his life because he, um, you know, he's a fugitive. And so you can imagine that, that he would be pretty nervous and, and Israelites might be, you know, not wanting to trust him. And so there's, there's more to this. There's, what, is, what is God like? What is this God that you say is the God of our ancestors? What is he like? And we see that, that God is a steady presence. He is. I am. Like a, a minuscule example of this kind of thing is um, if you've been working in a job for a while and, and you're experienced, the types of problems that, that you face, they don't phase you anymore, right? So, so my job, I'm kind of a tech support type of role. Um, we, we could have a content developer that that builds a piece of training content. They're trying to show it to a client and all of a sudden it stops working. It's not there anymore. They call me in and I have fixed this type of problem dozens of times. And so I just realized, oh, you forgot to check this box over here. Everything's good now. The difference between not knowing what's going on and being able to fix it is just a tiny example of what it means for, for God to always be steady, never changing. He just is. This is a little bit of a, a tough phrase to, to translate. You know, the, the Hebrew here is, is really old and everything. And so there's a little bit of meaning that it could be I am, but it could also be a little bit of I cause to be. And I think both of those things are true about God, right? I am. You know, Jesus said it and in verse 8, you know, before Abraham was, I mean, chap, John chapter 8, not verse 8, um, before Abraham was, I am. All right? 
throughout the book of John, he gives a, a number of I am statements. Right, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Jesus is. And, and Jesus is, is in this moment too. Right? The Trinity, Trinity didn't start in the New Testament. Right? God, is, God is here. God is triune. So Jesus is to the, the Pharisees in, in John just like he is to Moses here. Just like he is for Abraham. You know, all the way back at the beginning, for Adam, he is. For Abraham, he is. For Moses, he is. For David, he is. For Isaiah, he is. Moving on to the New Testament, for John, he is. For Paul, he is. Throughout church history, for Augustine, he is. For Thomas Aquinas, he is. For Martin Luther, he is. For Martin Luther King, he is. For you, he is. The same God that that we, as his, as his people, have experienced. The God that has revealed himself to us, that has worked in the midst of our sufferings, is the same God that revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush thousands of years ago. So he is and causes us to be. Right? Genesis chapter 1. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He caused it to be. Everything that exists now, he causes it to be. Colossians 1.17, you know, it says that he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He sustains everything. That's the God that we see in this book written thousands of years ago. It's a God that, that we can know today. A God that is powerful, a God that cares about his people, that cares about you as an individual, and a God who's present with us. As we transition to the next section, as God is preparing to redeem Israel, I want to I want to draw out the the gospel order that we see here, that God reveals Himself, and then He redeems. Right? It's it's about who God is. It's not about what we do. You know, First John four nineteen, we love because He first loved us. Right? That that gospel order we see throughout the throughout the Bible, and even in the Ten Commandments. He says, worship me because I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. All right, we do because he has done. I think a, a famous passage that, you know, that highlights this order is Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. <clears throat> Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You get weary and burdened if you try to do things in your own strength. If you try to come to God on your terms, it's burdensome. It's wearying. But when you come and you let Jesus carry your burdens, you take his yoke, that's when you find rest for your soul. We see in this passage that, that Moses isn't there yet. Right? He still thinks it depends on him. He still thinks that it's, it's up to him, but it's not. Right? It's up to God. So we see in here three ways that God is preparing to redeem Israel. He has a plan, he shows his power, and he uses all kinds of people. So with the plan, we see two pieces of it. We see that 
the people will come back to this mountain and that God will overpower the Egyptians. So chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I will, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. So God reveals a little bit of his plan. He makes this, this promise that, that Moses will come back, not just by himself, but with the people. They will all come back and, and worship God at this mountain. Just imagine how, how freeing and comforting that is for Moses. As he, I feel like he would, he would trust God because he's, he's seen his power already. He's seen his holiness. And for God to tell him that you're going to be successful. Like you're going to come back. The people are going to come back. You guys are going to worship me here. I like a, a small example of that feeling would be if you're watching a, a TV show and one of your characters that you like gets sick or gets shot or something, and you're worried about their, their life. If you go over to IMDb and you check out and you see how many episodes they're in, and they're in all the episodes, you're like, oh, well, we're fine, right? They're not going to die. <laughs> you just, that's the kind of idea that, that Moses has, right? He's, he's not worried about his success because God has told him that they'll come back. You're not worried about that character. So he knows that he's coming back. He knows the people will come back and he knows that, that they'll come out with power, plundering the Egyptians. We talked about this a little bit earlier. So they're going to come out plundering the Egyptians with all the jewelry and the, the clothing you know, overpowering this this global superpower. When I when I used the words global superpower, it made me think of of Hamilton. Right, the song Guns and, and Ships, Aaron Aaron Burr says, How does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? And he talks about their secret weapon, right? The an immigrant you know and love who's unafraid to step in. America's favorite fighting Frenchman. That's not what happens here, right? They don't, they're not an army. They probably do need a shower. Um, they don't have a secret weapon of an immigrant who's unafraid to step in because Moses is afraid, right? He's not wanting to step in. But their secret weapon is that they have Yahweh, right? God is on their side. So that's his, his plan. And they're going to come back. They're going to plunder the Egyptians. And God shows his, his power to Moses. Moses is still worried. You know, chapter 4, verse 1 says, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say the, the Lord didn't appear to you? And so God gives him three miraculous signs that, that he can use. The first one, um, his staff turns into a snake. You know, God says, what is in your hand? This is verse 2. A staff. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and became a staff in his hand. This will take place so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. A second sign, the second way that God shows his power is, is through Moses' hand, right? Verse 6, 
put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak. When he took it out, the hand was diseased, resembling snow. Put your hand back inside your cloak, he said. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. We took it out. It had become like the rest of his skin. And then the third sign, you could take water out of the Nile, pour it on the ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. So he has seen this, you know, this display of, of God's power. He can throw his staff down on the ground and it turns into a snake. And even still, he's missing it. He thinks it depends on him. He says, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. The Lord says, who, who gave humans a mouth, right? Who cares if you're not eloquent, right? You can throw your staff down, it turns into a snake. Pharaoh says, why should I let you go? This is why. <laughs> God doesn't need Moses to be eloquent, right? He uses all kinds of people, even reluctant ones that, that don't want to go. It's encouraging here that, that God didn't give up on Moses. Encouraging to me as I, you know, continue to be sanctified, continue to, to fight the same types of sin. You know, on this path to holiness, I feel like I go so slow sometimes, right? Continue to, to struggle. But the Lord doesn't, doesn't give up on us. So God uses Moses, and he also uses other people. He uses Aaron. So Moses' biggest problem with himself was his speaking ability. He says he's not eloquent. So God gives him Aaron. He says, isn't Aaron the Levite, your brother? This is verse 14. I know that he can speak well, and also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I'll help both you and him to speak and we'll teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you and you will serve as God to him. So God uses Moses, God uses Aaron, and God uses Moses' wife, Zipporah. There's, I'm not gonna lie, this is a weird scene. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, You are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. So we're not going to go too deep here, because it's weird. And, um, Egyptian boys were, were typically circumcised later at the age of 14, whereas Hebrew boys were circumcised at the age of eight days. And so it could be that, that Moses is, is following you know, the, the Egyptian customs rather than the Hebrew customs. But either way, he wasn't following the Hebrew customs that he should have. And Zipporah stepped in and realized that, that they needed to be faithful to what the Lord had called them to do. Zipporah is, is one of many faithful women that we see early in Exodus. Right, we saw the midwives in chapter one who, you know, weren't, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. They were faithful. Moses' mother and, and sister, they were faithful. 
And Zipporah is faithful. So a few applications for us, kind of following these same, um, yeah, these same three Ps, the, the plan, power, and people. An application for us is, is to follow God's plan. Right? We know what God has revealed to us in the, in the scriptures. Revelation 7, 9, he says, After this I looked. There's a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. So if we know that plan, we know what our future looks like, let God use you in that. Right? What, what part can you play so that people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will worship God? It could be as simple as sharing the gospel with your coworkers. It could be going overseas to a, a new nation. Let's follow his plan. Let's recognize his power. Ephesians chapter 1, 18, Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and he says, <clears throat> I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead, seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. This power that raised Christ from the dead. Let's recognize this power. This power that can show up in a burning bush, this power that can turn staff into snakes, can turn water into blood. This power is, is towards us who believe, working through us. Another application for us is, is to love his people. I think Romans chapter 12 is just a good example of this. You know, it lists out several of the spiritual gifts, the way that that's another example of, of God's power is that he gives his spirit to you, gives gifts to you. And then it has just command after command of, of how we act as, as God's people. Or we outdo one another in showing honor. We, we serve one another. We love one another. I encourage you to, to go and read that chapter, Romans 12, and, and just see just the, the myriad ways that, that we can act as, as God's people. The last couple of verses in chapter 4 are pretty moving here. Patrick read them earlier. Moses and Aaron went and assembled the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them, that he had seen their misery. They knelt low and worshipped. They've been suffering. They've been oppressed. They don't have much hope. And then Moses and Aaron come and, and they have hope. Right? They knelt low and worshipped. 
Lord is, is paying attention to you in the same way that he was paying attention to them. He's seen your misery. He's seen your suffering. And he has made a way for you to come to him and worship him. As we, as we read these chapters, it, it kind of seems a little bit like, a, uh, like an origin story for Moses. You know, comic book people and Marvel, the Avengers movies, they, they love origin stories, right? They'll, they'll give a, uh, a little piece in an Avengers movie to a character, and then they'll have a whole separate movie that's kind of the origin story for this superhero. They love it because it makes them hundreds of millions of dollars. But people love it too, right? So what's different about this origin story, though, is that Moses isn't any kind of superhero, right? He falls short in so many ways. The reason he's out there is because he's a murderer. He's a fugitive. He keeps saying that he's not eloquent, and he's not, not even willing. He says, God, please send someone else. But I want us to see that, that Jesus succeeds everywhere that Moses falls short, everywhere that we fall short. Moses is a murderer. Jesus gives up his life. Jesus dies for us. Matthew twenty twenty eight, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 12, verse 2, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Moses isn't eloquent, but Jesus, he has the words of eternal life. His word causes things to exist. Let there be light. There's light. Revelation chapter 1, verse 15 says that his voice is like the sound of cascading waters. And then John 6, 68 and 69, Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Moses is, is unwilling, but Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. That's the, Jesus is, is Yahweh. He's the same God that revealed himself to Moses. And so, as we close, just two, two brief applications for us. I want us to, to see this God that has revealed himself to us. Just revel in him, worship him, and then receive his redemption. We saw that the way that Israel is redeemed, you know, it costs, it costs blood, it costs the firstborn sons of the Egyptians or the blood of the lamb. And the redemption for us, for our sins, it costs blood too. It costs Jesus' blood. Yeah, see who he is. Receive his redemption through Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we, we love you. We're so thankful for you and for the way that you have revealed yourself to us, the way that you are powerful, the way that, that you care for us, the way that you are always with us, never changing. I thank you that you are a redeemer, 
a God that, that gave up his life so that we could be redeemed, redeemed face the suffering that, that we deserve. I pray that that would be a truth that, that permeates our lives and, and just helps us to, to live in a different way as we follow you, Lord. We're so thankful for you and so thankful for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.